And just one look at a coexist bumper bumper sticker. We'll tell you that each world religion seems to have an identifying symbol, but one of those symbols is not like the other. I'm talking about the cross of Christianity. And today we think of the cross as a piece of jewelry, but you have to remember it was a symbol of death and execution. You can imagine a religion today choosing a noose or an electric chair as its icon. Why would Christians then identify with the cross? And more importantly, why would they celebrate the death of their leader on the cross? I mean, that sounds backwards. Other religions mourn the death of their leader, and Christians celebrate it. But Jesus was executed. I mean, that sounds like defeat, but it wasn't. Christ's death on the cross was a victory. Being the sinless son of God, Jesus willingly went to the cross to die. Not for himself or his sins, but for us and our sins. He went to be a complete substitute sacrifice, making full payment for our sin debt that we might be reconciled to God. And the word for this is atonement. On the cross, Jesus was making a complete atonement for our sins. There are many facets to the atonement of Christ, like the the sides of a diamond, the facets of a diamond. And you should know the smallest facet was his physical suffering. This often gets the most attention, but technically that was a minor element of his work. Lots of people have suffered physically more than Jesus, and the Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. So what makes his death so special? He did not make atonement by merely physically dying, or suffering rather. Instead, the major element of the atonement was Jesus suffering the wrath of God in our place making propitiation for our sins. And this is something we've recently been contemplating going through Colossians. For example, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I mean, just imagine all of your sins, everything you've ever done wrong were written in a book. This book represents your certificate of debt to God that you can never pay. And he demands perfect righteousness from us, but we fall far short of that. But Jesus took our record book of sins and he signed his name to it. He made our debt of sin his own, as if he had done those things. And on the cross, he died to pay for them, all of them dying in our place to swallow up the wrath of God for us. And when his work was finished, there was nothing left. And so now for those in Christ by faith, their record book of sins is empty. The pages have all been erased. There's not a trace left of our sin debt before God because of his work. And this is why we say, as we've been learning, that Jesus is our completely sufficient Savior, that he made complete atonement for us, it's only by faith in him that you can be saved. You only need Jesus. You don't need faith plus. You don't need faith plus works, faith plus merit, faith plus penance, faith plus the church, faith plus the saints, faith plus Mary. You just need Jesus, faith in Jesus alone. Faith in him alone is the only means of being forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God once for all. So Christ's substitutionary sacrifice is clearly that the main dimension, the main facet, you might say, of the atonement. He conquered sin and death itself on the cross. 
and resurrected to victory. But that was not Christ's only conquest on the cross, and that was not his only victory. It was not the only work he came to do. It was the main work, but there was another facet to his atonement, another related but distinct conquest on the cross, where on the cross, Jesus was also triumphing over Satan and evil forces. This is also something we just learned in Colossians, where in the next verse, Colossians 2.15, Paul goes on to say, speaking of Christ on the cross, it says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And we learned last week that this verse is speaking of Christ's victory on the cross over Satan demons. And the cross was actually the culmination of a long-standing conflict between God and Satan. And God put on display his complete power as he fully triumphed over evil through the death and resurrection of his son. Now, I know that for most people today, the the world of Satan and demons, angels, sounds more like fantasy, like Star Wars, than reality. But God has revealed in his word that there is a very real spiritual world. It is unseen and undetectable by us. If it were never revealed, we would not know of it. But God has revealed some of it, some things he wants us to know about an invisible world. And chief among the things he wants us to know is that he has triumphed over all of those forces of evil. Satan and demons have worked to corrupt, enslave, and kill mankind, chiefly by leading people into sin, for the wages of sin is death. But on the cross, Jesus stripped them of their power and set captives free. And you may never think about this, but the Bible talks about Christ's triumph over Satan on the cross. It is a real dimension of his atonement. It's part of the good news. Now, all of our enemies, sin and death and Satan himself, were defeated on the cross. And so this is why we spent all of our time last time exploring just one verse, Colossians 2.15, and this conquest of Christ on the cross. But like I said, though, verse 15, if you remember Colossians, just gives us a small window into that world and into that work on the cross. There's a whole backstory there, though, that this conflict between God and Satan was really the culmination of a long-standing conflict. It didn't come out of nowhere, but it was the climax of a long conflict between God and the devil. And this was also the fulfillment of the oldest prophecy in the Bible. And so really, the more you understand this essential backstory to the cross, the better you will understand what took place on the cross, and the more you will live in light of it and appreciate really what Jesus did for us on the cross. So that's what we're going to do today. Instead of moving forward with Colossians, we're we're typically going verse by verse through Colossians, but today we're just hitting pause just for one message. Really, you might say a a bonus message on Colossians 2.15, just to further explore the, the backstory, you might say, to Christ's triumph over Satan on the cross. I mean, by way of illustration, look, before the 1990s, people weren't too familiar with the concept of a prequel. You know, good stories, they came to an end, and they're just, oh, they're over. They're, they're done with. There's nothing more. But later, fans wanted more. There's more money to be made. And the main story had run its course, so all you're left to do is tell the story that came before the story, the prequel. 
And they were designed to provide all that backstory and all the background. And when done right, they would really enrich the main story. Well, Christianity is about the cross. It's our symbol for a reason. Because on the cross, Jesus was conquering sin and Satan and death. And so we focus on the cross. We spend our time talking about the cross, and rightly so. But there's a whole backstory to the cross. And if you're going to better understand and appreciate and live in light of the cross, you would do well to know some of that backstory. And the only difference is God has not revealed this as a prequel after the fact. He's let the backstory be made known from the beginning. And so, I understand this still might be new to some of you. I found that many Christians are, in a way, limited in their understanding of what Jesus was actually doing on the cross. Yeah, we're Christians. We wear jewelry. We, we got a cross on our neck. But why? What, what was he actually doing on that cross for us? And, and it really was, it was the culmination of so much. What went up to the cross? What led up to the cross? Anyway, I think it's time, or rather worth our time today, to explore the cross. Anytime we can further explore what went on on the cross is a good time. And, and we want to focus on this one dimension, namely Christ's triumph over Satan, and, and further understand the backstory to that. We might better appreciate what was done for us. So with that in mind, we're going to get started, and you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, where the backstory to the cross goes all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes all things visible and invisible. Man is made to steward the world. Angels are made to serve God. Everything is good. In fact, at the end of creation, God himself declares it's all very good. But by Genesis 3, things change very quickly. We find that this figure of Satan has taken the form of a serpent in order to tempt and corrupt Adam and Eve. Now, even before we get into Genesis 3, I'll say that just the very presence of Satan in the Garden of Eden kind of like begs for its own backstory. Like, who is this figure? How did he get here? Who, clearly, there's, there's a figure behind the serpent. Where did he come from? Why is he trying to corrupt Adam and Eve? I thought God just made all things very good. He didn't seem very good. So like, what gives? Well, in this case, God did give us some backstory after the fact. And later in scripture, we're actually told some background to Genesis 3 and where this figure came from. And we've got a ton of ground to cover this morning. I'm just really surveying and summarizing for you this morning. So before we get to Genesis 3, let me share a little of it's Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. And it tells us a bit of Satan's origin, his origin story, you might say. And we know that when God made the visible world, he also made the invisible world. Spiritual beings were part of his creation. So we're talking angels and cherubim and seraphim. We don't know much about them. We just know that there are many of them. There's different ranks, different kinds. And Satan was one of those created angelic beings. In fact, according to Ezekiel 28, it seems that he was number one. We're led to believe he was the greatest and most glorious of all of God's creation. 
He was called the anointed cherub who covers. This is the highest order of created being. He was given an exalted position by God himself as one who covers the glory of God, who veils and shields the glory of God. Accordingly, Satan had an exalted position and status. Later it says in Ezekiel, he was on the holy mountain of God and walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Now there's mystery there. We, we don't really know what these stones refer to, but no doubt it shows Satan was one of the angels who dwelt as close to the glory of God as possible. Ezekiel 28, 12 says he had the seal of perfection and was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The Satan was God's most perfect and beautiful creation. And it says he was blameless in all of his ways, that he was created good. He was part of the creation that was deemed very good. But obviously, at some point between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, there's, you know, time had passed. At some point, something changed. Satan himself changed, and he fell into a state of corruption. Now, most of the details of that rebellion have not been revealed. But we are told the culprit, namely pride. Satan became conceited, it says, puffed up because of his beauty and prominence in creation. That he evidently wanted the glory for himself not God. He figured he should be the one to rule this world that God has created, not man. Essentially, he should be God. So Satan rebelled against God's authority. And according to Revelation 12, 4, it seems to indicate that when he fell, he took a third of the holy angels with him. We're led to believe that somehow, some way, one third of the angels God created joined Satan and his rebellion against God's order. They decided to join Satan in his mission. What was that mission? It was to corrupt and destroy the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind, so as to essentially take over this world, to rule this world. Satan wanted to be the god of this world, and he essentially succeeded. We see this here in Genesis 3, which we'll just be sampling for the sake of time. But it's very clear from Satan's interaction with Eve what his mission was. He wants them to rebel against God, just like he has rebelled against God. And Satan leaves, or rather leads Eve to question God's word. Verse 1, has God really said that you should not eat from any tree of the garden? And then he outright contradicts God's warning. Verse 4, you surely will not die. And then he outright deceives And tempts, verse 5, he says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's ironic is that Adam and Eve were already like God. God just made them in his image. In reality, though, Satan wanted them to become like him. He wanted to reform them in his image. He wanted to spoil the work of God's hands, And he succeeded. Eve disobeyed God's command. She took from that tree, as did Adam, who was with her. And in that moment, sin awakened in their heart. And they were plunged into a world of guilt and shame and separation from God. And in one sense, their eyes were opened. But in another, they were closed as they entered a spiritual blindness. And now physical death would be introduced into the world, as would spiritual death 
which speaks of an eternal separation from God. And so you see, later in the chapter after this, God issues a series of curses or judgments for their rebellion on man, on woman. Even the created world itself is cursed by God. In essence, because of sin, God cursed the whole world to futility. That life would now be difficult for a man. And after, it's going to end in the bitterness of death. And even beyond that, because of man's corruption and rebellion, he would then be separated from God forever. And God is perfectly holy. Man is holy no longer. And so God and man can dwell together no more. And this judgment would not just pertain to Adam and Eve, but also all of their descendants, all humanity. They became corrupt in their very natures that day. And their sin nature would be passed on to all their progeny. This original sin, this event marked the corruption of the whole human race. It's kind of like Romans 5.12 confirms. It says, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men and for all sinned. So Satan succeeded in spoiling and corrupting God's perfect creation. Now all humanity was unholy and cut off from God. And this is essentially what enabled Satan to take over, become the God of this world. And as we learned last week, Scripture does in fact teach that since the fall, Satan is the ruler of this world. That Christ himself called Satan the ruler of this world three times. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, he's outright called the God of this world. And that being said, though, you should know that Satan's power does not compare to God's power. The Bible does not teach that good and evil are in some equal and opposite power struggle, like a yin and yang idea. No. And for all of Satan's power and might, compared to God, it's still like trying to sink a battleship with marshmallows. Like, there's no comparison. But this leads to an inescapable conclusion that God allowed and tolerated Satan's rebellion. And he allowed and tolerated all angelic rebellion. And he allowed and tolerated our rebellion. The real question is why? Why not instantly judge Satan the second he rebelled? Why allow him to take a third of the angels with him? Why even allow him to show up in the Garden of Eden in the first place? God could have prevented that. Why allow Adam and Eve to fall and all humanity to be plunged into sin and death and separation forever? You can't avoid the conclusion that the fall was God's will. But why? I mean, I thought God was good. How could he allow that? The answer, for those who are willing to hear it, is for God's greater glory. That God has allowed and tolerated evil so as to put on display his perfect nature. That in judging evil, he shows his justice and wrath and righteousness. Those are part of his perfections. But sin also enables him to display his mercy, his grace, his love, his forgiveness. God is good and he will right all wrongs. He will not allow sin and death to get the last word over his perfect creation. And evil would only be a problem if it never ended. But it will end. 
And though long-suffering, God would show his greater glory in redeeming a fallen world. Even this is hinted at in the fall. As God cursed man and cursed the world, we still find the first promise of redemption. Right? Mixed in with the bad news of sin and death comes the first hope of the gospel. It comes in Genesis 3.15. Look there. This is as God is cursing Satan. But he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is very interesting. The more you learn what the Bible says about Satan, the more you realize that in this moment, God was actually essentially handing over the keys of the world to the devil. And God is still completely sovereign. But this is when Satan effectively became the ruler of this world. He had successfully captured man in his power, which is death. But Satan was not going to get the last word. The rule of sin and death would not go on forever. And God promised that one would come, the seed of the woman. And he would end Satan's reign and the reign of death forever. Satan would bruise him on the heel, indicating a painful but not fatal blow. Meanwhile, this seed would bruise him on the head, finally crushing the serpent's power once for all. His sovereign God would display his sovereign power and rule over Satan on that day. And God was not going to use an angel to do this. No archangel, no cherub was going to be the one to defeat the devil. That God was going to use a human, a seed of the woman to do this. God didn't say who at this time. He didn't say when. Just some future undisclosed offspring of Eve would be the instrument of Satan's defeat. Now, I can only imagine that when God said this, Satan laughed. I mean, like a human defeat him, the most powerful being created. I can only imagine Satan responding, saying, I'd like to see you try. But do you know what happened next? For thousands of years, Satan was bolstered in his confidence and rebellion. What do I mean? Well, I mean that after the fall, no seed of the woman came anywhere close to overcoming Satan and the power of sin and death. As a case in point, just look at Cain in Genesis 4. I mean, Adam and Eve, they have their first child, the first seed of the woman. How does that turn out? He served only himself, and when his brother Abel stood in the way, he murdered him. I'm sure that after Cain, Satan thought to himself, this is going to be easy. And from there, things get no better. You read Genesis 5, you find that all the descendants of Eve, nothing is better. None are righteous. None are sinless. None have the power to overcome sin or Satan or death. They all need deliverance themselves. Centuries would pass, just more of the same. Sin, rebellion, failure, death. There were some whom God redeemed and used to further his plan. From Noah to Abraham, Moses to David. 
These men were all still sinners, still needing salvation themselves. They didn't have the power to overcome sin or Satan or death, proven by the fact that they all died and stayed dead. But God's promise of a seed that would crush the serpent's head was not forgotten. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, it was developed and further expanded upon. It was revealed that this deliverer would not only be a seed of the woman, but also a son of God. That God the Son himself would come down, take on human flesh, so as to overcome sin and Satan and death in our place. We know who this son is. It's Christ Jesus. And for the sake of time, we're skipping even more backstory. Just read your whole Old Testament. But for now, turn to Matthew 4. For the sake of time, we will just move to, to Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 4. Fast forwarding thousands of years now comes Jesus on the scene. And his formal ministry begins with his baptism. But then immediately after that, What's the very first thing that happens that's recorded in the ministry of Jesus? It's temptation by the devil. Ever think about that? Matthew 4, look at verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. As Jesus began his formal messianic ministry, that God himself willed to put his son to the test. This would be part of the display that Jesus was different. He was to be a second Adam, a new head of a redeemed race. But to be that new head, he had to succeed in all the ways where Adam failed. And that began with Satan's temptation. Did Satan know Jesus was the son of God? Seemingly, yes, But in human form, we don't know what Satan really made of him. Certainly, though, Satan in his pride still believed he could overpower him. And his goal was to stumble Jesus into sin. Or at the very least, sabotage his messianic ministry and keep him away from the cross. Now, for the sake of time, again, we're just sampling this morning. You can read Matthew 4 for yourself. But with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life... Satan tempted Christ in the same way he tempted Adam and Eve. But something was different. Jesus didn't budge. No human had ever resisted the devil like this before. Jesus stood his ground. He clung to the will of the Father. No doubt this is strange. Satan had not experienced defeat like this before. I mean, without exception, humans, they just all fell into sin. It was not hard to to lead a human into sin. And Satan, though, he believed Jesus was no exception. Look down at verse 11. It says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Luke 4.13 adds that the devil left him until a more opportune time. He's not done. He's just going to pick his... Next battle. Now, Satan was determined to see Jesus disqualified from his messianic mission. Now, speaking of another more opportune time, go to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. And now we are further along in the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus uses this time to reveal more of his true identity and true mission to his disciples. 
Specifically here, Jesus affirms the confession of Peter that he really is the Christ and the Son of God. He is the divine Messiah. But he also wants his disciples to know why he came. He came to save his people, not just from Rome, but from sin and Satan and death. And to do that, he's going to have to die. And so Matthew 16, 21, this is from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Look at verse 22. As Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The disciples really believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they believed he came to conquer Rome and reestablish Israel's prominence among the nations. They were missing the bigger picture. That explains why Peter just could not envision Jesus dying because he is the Messiah. You can't die. But how interesting is Christ's response back to Peter in verse 23? says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's a stunning response. By no means is this suggesting Peter was possessed by the devil at this point. He was not. But unbeknownst to him, in this moment, he was aligning himself with the devil's interests to keep Jesus from the cross. And in a way, Peter became a tool for the devil to once again tempt Jesus. As in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus by offering him all the glory without the cup of suffering. And that's basically what Peter was doing, tempting him in the same way. This was not the will of the Father, and Jesus once again resisted. After this, though, after this moment, we see a very distinct shift taking place, though. It seems that before this, Satan was very much trying to keep Jesus away from the cross. But after this, a new strategy appears. He is now actively going to work to put Jesus on the cross. That's strange. Why why is that? Why that change in strategy? We'll get to that, but first let's establish that fact. Now turn to Luke 22. Luke 22. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? There were several parties. The Jewish leaders, Pilate, the Roman soldiers. Many conspired against him. But scripture teaches that there were events going on in the spiritual world, which we can't see, in conjunction with our world that led to Jesus on the cross. And this started with Judas. Luke 22, look at verse 2. It says, The chief priests and scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Verse 3 says, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. And the Jewish leaders at this point, they desperately wanted to kill Jesus, but they had no opportunity. They needed to find a way to arrest him in secret, away from the crowds, because of his popularity. That way they could make up false charges against him. What they really needed was an inside man who would tell them of Christ's whereabouts. And Judas was going to be that inside man. We learn here that in Judas's own hardness of heart, he became a tool of the devil. 
that Satan was working through Judas to make sure Jesus ended up on the cross. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who was going to betray him. And although we do not, he had eyes to see Satan and surely demons working to conspire to put him on the cross. John's gospel tells us more about this final evening before Christ's death. And there in the upper room, three times Jesus referred to Satan. For example, I'll just read John 14 verse 30. Christ said to his disciples before his death, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. We don't have eyes to see, but Jesus knew Satan was coming and surely his fallen angels with him. And they were going to torment him on the cross. And Jesus knew the real power behind his earthly opposition was demonic. And they were going to make him suffer in ways we cannot fathom. And that time was at hand. Later that night, Jesus was arrested. The disciples all fled. Remember how Satan demanded to sift Peter like wheat? He did. The disciples fled. Jesus was thoroughly abandoned. Now look at what Jesus said to his captors. It's at the end of the chapter, Luke 22, 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Verse 53, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. This hour belonged to them, as did the power of darkness, which I take to be a reference to evil spiritual forces. Jesus knew the Father was going to hand over his Son to all of his enemies, human and angelic, on the cross. The cross was a time where the Son was thoroughly abandoned and just placed into the hands of man and Satan. And in the morning, that time came as Jesus was nailed to the cross. And for the first three hours, 9 a.m. to noon, Jesus hung on the cross. And we can gather that in addition to his physical suffering, the Father gave the Son over into the hands of a Satan and surely demons. And they could do their worst to make him suffer, stopping short of taking his life. Because no one would take the Son's life. He would lay it down on his own accord. But back to that question, I thought before Satan was trying to keep Jesus away from the cross, now he's actively conspiring to put him on the cross. And there's a clear shift we can see. The question is why? And here I agree with an old seminary professor I had, Dr. Greg Harris, who who termed this the wager. And I believe here Satan was pushing his chips all in. That this was a grand wager. He could not stumble Jesus in the wilderness. He could not deter him from the cross. Despite his best efforts, he couldn't do it. But so be it. There there is no way, though, this man Jesus could endure the full brunt of his power poured out on Jesus on the cross. I believe Satan was convinced that he and his angels could spiritually afflict Jesus so much on the cross that he would give up. He would take himself off the cross and disqualify himself. The cross was to be the final and greatest temptation of Jesus. 
And Christ himself reflects the knowledge that he was going to be tempted on the cross. Remember what Jesus said when he was arrested, Matthew 26, 53. He said, do you not think I can appeal to my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. At any moment, Jesus could have just prayed, called to the father, He'd have sent down the angels to rescue him from his captors and Satan and demons. Just take him off the cross. Would have been easy. In fact, the crowd mocked him, remember? And they said, if you really are the Messiah, why don't you take yourself down off the cross? You realize he could have done that. But if he did that, he would have disqualified himself from his messianic mission. And he would have failed. Of course, Jesus would have still returned to heaven. But he would have done so alone, and the human population of heaven would be zero. Satan would have succeeded in killing the whole race, and he would remain the God of this world. But thankfully, that is not what happened. That despising the shame, Jesus endured the cross. And we can only imagine what went on in that unseen spiritual realm while Jesus was on the cross. The spiritual battlefield at Calvary is unimaginable. The hour belonged to the whole host of demons, and and I believe they were set on making Jesus suffer so much that he gave up, that he called himself down. But how frustrated they must have been, though, as the hours went on. But like the wilderness, Jesus, he didn't budge. He wasn't moving. He wasn't praying to the Father to take him off the cross. There on the cross, he remained not calling for rescue. You know, I'm also curious to wonder what the holy angels were thinking during this time. I mean, I bet they're armed and ready, waiting to go down to rescue the sun. You know, 1 Peter 1.12 tells us, though, that the angels long to look into God's plan of redemption. Meaning this is one thing they don't fully understand. They have never experienced personally God's mercy God's grace, God's forgiveness, they have no need. And there's actually no plan of redemption for fallen angels. They're without hope. Why would God do all this for humans who are lower than angels? Hebrews 2.16 confirms that Jesus did not come to give help to angels, but to man. So again, the question is why? What is God doing here? I'm sure the angels were wondering And I'll tell you what God was doing, because something changed during this second half of Christ's time on the cross. For the second three hours, now at noon to 3 p.m., darkness fell over the land. You remember that? And during this time, Jesus fell silent. He was not speaking during the second three hours. He would not speak again until the end when he yielded up his spirit. But this darkness, what was this darkness all about? Now, you might assume this darkness was related to like Satan's activity, but it wasn't. This was something far worse. And we don't have time to establish this. I'm just stating the facts. But scripture indicates that the darkness signified the presence of God the Father himself showing up in his wrath. You know, from the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosaic covenant, God himself set this precedent 
that whenever he came to ratify a covenant with his people, he showed up in darkness. And the darkness veiled his glory. And through the blood of Christ, now he was going to show up to ratify a new covenant in the blood of his son. And he shows up in the darkness. This is not revealed, but we can only imagine that Satan and demons would have fled at this point. But what was the father going to do? I mean, did the angels bet that he was going to go save his son? It's kind of like when God tested Abraham, right? He told him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the child of promise. And in faith, Abraham was going to do it. He had the knife ready to plunge down into the heart of his only son and the child of promise. But God stayed his hand. It was just a test. And God even provided a ram caught in the thicket as a substitute sacrifice. But this time though, no. The father would not spare the son. He came precisely because Jesus was the lamb of God. He was the substitute sacrifice. He was the one on whom the father is going to pour out the full cup of his wrath. That wrath was for us. That cup had our name on it because of our record book of sins. We're the ones who violated his law, but the sinless savior is going to drink the cup in our place. As we said before, this here was the greatest dimension of the atonement. This also means this was the greatest suffering of the cross, the darkness. The father did not relent until the son had paid for every last sin of his people. This is what it took, as we learn in Colossians, for God to cancel out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is what it took for that to happen. But again, though unfathomable, Jesus was faithful. He endured. He remained. He stayed on the cross and he paid it all. And having drunk the cup to the full, he cried out, it is finished at the end, signifying our debt of sin was paid in full. And then he yielded up his life on his own will and died. And by this death, We can be freed from the power of sin and Satan, even death itself. And this Jesus truly was the seed of the woman. He was the one to come who would finally free us from the curse and the curse of death. And though Satan definitely bruised him on the heel and made him suffer much in that death, that Jesus overcame and crushed him on the head. And he dealt Satan's rule over this world a fatal blow. But still, some of you might be thinking, wait, Jesus still died though, right? I mean, death is the end. Death is defeat. Death awaits us all. So he still died. That's that's still defeat, right? Well, it's victorious because his story did not end in death. That he surely died and was buried. But on the third day, he rose again, proving his power and authority over even death itself. And I truly love how C.S. Lewis puts this in his Christian allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You think it's a kid's book. It's not just a kid's book. 
know, in the land of Narnia, the human Edmund, he had fallen into the hands of the evil white witch. And she tempted him with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And he fell. He betrayed his siblings. He pledged his allegiance to her. But later on, Aslan the lion comes and rescues Edmund. And Edmund realizes he had done wrong. He was deceived, but he had acted wickedly. But later, the witch comes back and demands from Aslan the life of Edmund to kill him. And she says to Aslan that Edmund is a traitor. And according to the deep magic of Narnia from the dawn of time, the lives of traitors are forfeit to the witch. And Aslan does not deny this. that she's correct. But in secret, Aslan reaches a deal with the witch. And so the following night, Aslan slips away alone to go meet the witch at a place called the Stone Table. And Susan and Lucy, the human girls, they follow, they watch. And there at the Stone Table, they they watch as Aslan turns himself over to the White Witch and her evil horde. In case you don't know, by the way, Aslan represents Christ in his allegory. The White Witch, the devil, the horde, his demons. But they cannot believe it because Aslan, he could easily overpower all of them. But he doesn't. He doesn't resist. And they watch as hundreds of monstrous creatures surround him. They tie him up. They muzzle him. Then they shave his mane. They kick him. They beat him. They mock him. They spit on him. Finally, the witch comes up with a stone knife. And she whispers into Aslan's ear that, She has won. He has lost. She'll be the queen of Narnia forever and plunges the knife into his heart, killing him. Later, they abandon his body to prepare for a future battle. And Susan and Lucy stay with his body all night. Excuse me. At dawn, they hear a great cracking noise. They look and see that the stone table has been broken in two, and Aslan's body is gone. But then they hear a voice behind them. It's Aslan, and he's risen from the dead. And he explains that he sacrificed his life in exchange for Edmund. He says that the witch was right, and that deep magic from the dawn of time states that all traitors' lives are forfeit to the witch. But if she had looked back before the dawn of time to a deeper magic, she would have learned that when a willing, innocent victim is killed by a traitor, the stone table would crack and death would be reversed. It's a good story. Now, this is a layered allegory, but the witch, again, represents Satan. Edmund represents humanity. And we are all traitors. And we are those sinners. And we've fallen into the hands of the devil. And he holds the power of death, Hebrews 2.14 says, and, and our lives are forfeit to him. But the willing, innocent one, the Lion of Judah, died as a substitute in our place. He endured the Father's wrath, and he endured the torment of Satan and demons on the cross. But per the Father's greater power, he overcame even death itself, rising from the dead. 
And now through his death and resurrection, Satan's power is undone and victory over him is assured. You know, the moment Aslan rose from the dead, the witch had lost. And granted, the final battle had not taken place yet. But there was nothing she and her forces could do to stop Aslan because there's just no comparison in power. And likewise, in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God had declared victory. That he has triumphed over the forces of evil, Satan, demons, death itself. Now, for now, they are still allowed to exist and even afflict and tempt believers. But the war is over. And those in Christ, by faith, need not fear, for the devil cannot rob or steal your soul any longer. With the lion of the tribe of Judah behind you, you can truly say, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And now you can live in bold confidence before God, no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And now you can heed the master's call to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. And I would urge you to follow this Jesus, to give him your life and persevere in faith. Jesus himself promises, Revelation 3.21, he says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And that is something we can do now by, by faith and confidence in him. Now, at the end of the day, though, what still boggles our mind is, is that question, why? Why would he do this for us, for humans? And the life of Edmund was nothing compared to the life of Aslan. And likewise, our lives are nothing compared to the life of Christ. All we can say is, well, thanks be to God and praise be to the Lamb. We know we didn't deserve it but we will thank him for it. And we will live the rest of our lives as offerings of praise. I hope that's your response. For truly we've served a savior who has triumphed victoriously over sin and Satan and death himself. And because of him, we can say 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five: O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's thank him together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning as we hear again the gospel, the good news. And it's made good by by our Savior Christ who died a death in our place. And that death had many dimensions to it, physical suffering, torment. Spiritual torment from Satan and demons, even your own wrath, Father. Christ did so much in our place, all to overcome sin and Satan and death itself for us. It's only by this work that we can be free. Left to ourselves, we would be thoroughly lost forever, separated forever. And we've sent the Savior to, to save forever those who know him. And we will thank you for this work. We cannot explain it all. We cannot give reason why us, why not others why you did any of this, but we know ultimately it is for your glory, and so we will give you glory. And I pray our response is just to offer up more of our lives to you, just as offerings of thanksgiving and praise. We give you glory now as we follow this Christ, picking up our own crosses, even if it means our suffering, but to follow him and let others know what he has done, that they might enter this joy as well. Transform us by the good news of the gospel and, and just grow us in our faith and confidence in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.